HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed healthy food that actually tastes good. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code A Taste of the Past, all one word, for 25% off your order. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And, you know, we've done a lot of shows, Middle Eastern food, Mediterranean food, kind of foods that I really love, and I, I venture to say most everyone loves. And now there is a new book out, and it's and the title kind of threw me for a minute. It's on the food of the Islamic world. And I'm saying, well, that's the Middle East. That's Mediterranean in part. But then there's so much more. So I had to go look it up, and it was a real learning curve for me. And the author is a well-known author in her own right, and a well-respected author, and authority on Middle Eastern cooking and Mediterranean cooking. It's Anissa Helou, and Anissa has taken on the task, or took on the task, of exploring 
the food of the Islamic world. So it, the reach, it reached a little further than her usual purview, I would say. And in exploring the cooking of lands that were as geographically far-flung as Senegal and Tanzania, Egypt and Lebanon, Uzbekistan, and regions of China, Anissa has pulled together through linking all the historical influences and common cultural practices and presents the cooking of these regions in her new book called Feast, Food of the Islamic World. Anissa, as I said, is a a well-known food writer. She's a chef and a journalist and cooking teacher as well, right? True. And and who's written several award-winning books, such as Levant, Recipes and Memories from the Middle East, Lebanon Cuisine, Mediterranean Street Food. We could list on (laughs) and on, but, you know, you get by the book, you can see it all in the book, (laughs) her list of everything. Um, and they and she really focuses on the cuisines and culinary heritage of the Middle East and the Mediterranean. She was born and raised in Beirut, of a Lebanese mother and a Syrian father, and um, she then lived in London for a long time. She has taken on this by traveling and really gathering the recipes, and I, and I can't wait to ask her how in the world she managed to put that all together. But she gathered the recipes and the food practices from all these different places. And the book is quite a compendium of very delicious-sounding and delicious-looking recipes and dishes, something for everyone. And this, and I think that um, all the while she has presented this with a keen sense of the history and culture of these various regions, and, and that does not get lost in the presentation of just a recipe. She now lives in Sicily and is here to celebrate her new book. Welcome, Anissa. Thank you. The book is beautiful. And I really do applaud you on managing to sift through all of the... I can't, I can't even imagine how many different dishes you were considering or presenting with. And so, you know, I, I, that's, that is amazing to me. And Yota Motolenge wrote a, a little blurb for your book, which I think is is so right on. He says, for telling, he wrote, for telling a genuine food story that covers a quarter of the world's population, the Islamic world. Now, covering a quarter of the world's population is a lot of food and a lot of different dishes. How did you decide what to keep in and what to keep out? Well, I could have written three volumes, really, because um, I think for me, it was a combination of classics that I felt I couldn't like not have in the book and personal favorites and a certain amount of freshness like recipes that would surprise people that have not been covered in other books or widely especially in the West Um, and because I divided the book in you know essential ingredients as it were it was easier to select for each chapter to get a good balance. Hmm. It's yeah. I wanted to ask you about dishes that were you know would be a little more surprising to people. So we'll talk about that. Um, when you um, you oh you did say specifically, however, 
you said you wanted to include classics, but you did say specifically that the things that we're all familiar with don't appear, like what, baklava, hummus, uh, who needs another recipe for that, right? (laughs) Exactly. Actually, hummus appears, but it's in the the fresh uh, produce uh, chapter when it should have been in the grains. But um, yeah, I mean... Very common recipes that either I have covered in other books or have been covered by many different authors, I didn't feel that I needed to include. But there were, like, um, variations. So I didn't do baklava as it should be, but I did filo pastry pastries um, to kind of talk about the technique and, and present it in a slightly different and, and fresher way. But on the other hand, you know, tabbouleh, I included because it's like, you know, a quintessential. Right. And again, so many variations exactly. on, you know, on what you can do with it, right? Um, well, what, when you, you describe um, in, try, in putting together these dishes and the places, I mean, where was the, the, what was the most unusual or for you different place that you traveled to find some of these recipes well there were several countries that i had never been to mm-hmm. um indonesia for instance which is the most populous uh, muslim country the you know the, right. the largest uh muslim population in the world um muslim china where i had never been um, zanzibar which actually belonged to oman until i can't remember the the date but until quite recently there were countries that I had not been where I discovered foods that I had never seen before or that I knew about but didn't really, hadn't tasted properly or hadn't seen being prepared. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, when, when you mentioned that I saw, I was leafing through and looking at some of the recipes and, and looking at one from the Uyghur mm-hmm. um, population in China I, I was that surprised me I was surprised yeah well there are 23 million Muslims in China so it's it's a sizable minority hmm. I think 23 or 25 so and even though the food in in Uyghur country is not very varied it's really interesting and it's much closer to let's say Turkey or the Turkic tr- traditions than to Chinese hmm. because they have breads and their noodles are made with wheat. And so they eat is, a lot yeah. of noodles and a, l- a lot of bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had mentioned hand-shaved noodles <laughs> was something new for you. Uh, hand-shaved noodles, wonderful, but no recipe, alas. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it would have been very difficult for anyone to do them. <laughs> yes, I would imagine so. Um, you, have, you referred to, in the book, uh, three great culinary traditions... Um, that that have sort of pulled together this this all these vast regions. What what would those be? Well, <clears throat> you have the Persian cuisine, which is the mother cuisine, mm-hmm. actually, of all of them, and then Ottoman, which with the Ottoman Empire they took they were I mean they took Persian dishes and then they did you know um, adapted them to their own, uh, and then they developed the cuisine into a really extraordinary cuisine. And then the Mughal in northern India, which is, well, more towards the Persian, but then with an extraordinary, you know, um, 
selection of spices and complex, uh, you know, spices in each dish and a very particular way of making rice and meats. And so, I mean, these three are the great cuisines, let's say, of the Muslim and we're probably the cuisines of the Muslim empire. They're the, the great empires. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Persian empire was not Muslim, but when the, the Muslims developed and conquered and became great empires, they actually took the Persian cooks because they invaded Persia. And the Abbasids took Persian cooks with them into their court in Baghdad and all over where they invaded and conquered. And that's how... Persian cuisine propagated everywhere. But when the Ottomans came, where they invaded, they changed or they developed, evolved the cuisine. And so if you go to North Africa, you have Tunisia and Algeria who were under Ottoman occupation, and their cuisine is very different or fairly different from the Moroccan cuisine, which was not occupied by the Persians and carried on with the, by the Ottomans and carried on with the Persian influence. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And we're talking about empires and the great empires that we're talking about from, let's say, 400, 500 A.D. on. I mean... Uh, 700 A.D. 700 A.D. I mean, for the Muslim. Right. So that's when Islam came into being. But the Persian empires were before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then... They were conquered. I, I mean, I have very bad memory, and I don't remember the dates. They were conquered by the Muslims, and then they reconquered. So there was a kind of, you know, giving and taking and then giving back. Um, but then in the end, Iran became where the Shiites, you know, established themselves and expanded, I mean... Hmm. It, well, you mentioned in, in describing the um, the Uyghur dishes that the that they had breads and they had noodles made with wheat. If you were to try to um, name a couple of things that really tie together all of these various cuisines, is there is there some common thread? One common, two common, three common things. Well, I would go with the staples, which is bread and rice. Some countries have both bread and rice as the staples and others have one or the other. And even in Indonesia, where there is very little bread, you would find breads that have come from the Indian sort of community, like um, martabak, which is a multi-layered bread, and roti. Roti, right. So, I mean, I think you find bread almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. But in some countries, it has an absolutely essential place at the table and in others it's in different times of the day that they eat them mm-hmm. that they eat it and just a little bit of a spoiler the bread chapter is <laughs> wonderful <laughs> i mean you just it's well as you say sometimes it's yeah it's just a little something along the side maybe to help scoop up some of the food or just to eat but in other there are whole meals that are the yeah bread well, dishes. i mean when the, the the favorite one of the favorite dishes of the Prophet Muhammad was tarid, which is a, a composite dish with um, meat stew, meat and vegetable stew, uh, <clears throat> on bread. 
but then it developed like in Lebanon it became fatty and it's with yogurt and not with a stew but in the Arab Gulf it's an essential dish during Ramadan and there's a it's basically the most important part of that dish is the bread which is very toasted very thin bread that they break up and they build up in a plate in a dish and they pour the broth of the stew over it and it becomes soft and very moist and delicious and then they put the meat and vegetables on top but if you don't have you know a thick layer of the bread people think you haven't done it right hmm. <laughs> uh, well when you say the di- the hmm. names of the dishes were similar or almost the same but the names of course have as you know have changed according to the cultures was that did that present a particular challenge to you when you were um, researching the foods or not really I mean <clears throat> I kind of um, there isn't enough historical research on food in general so when you really want to trace the source of a recipe or dish or whatever sometimes it's difficult to kind of pinpoint the exact origin or the time it came into mm-hmm. being in fact not sometimes often <clears throat> but there is you know, there's Charles Perry's book, Medieval Arab right, Cuisine. Right. He was on the show. We had him on, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, his his translations of the manuscripts is absolutely invaluable. Uh, there are other historic books that one can refer to. And, of course, you know, when you go and speak to the people, the knowledge, culinary lore, has been transmitted generation after generation. And, and from home cooks, you can learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you said is very, very telling. That there's not enough research on food, and that, and that is something that have. That's I think we can say across the board for any culture, that there's, you know, little by little, we're you know we're, the research and the people doing um, culinary work has grown, but it's something that is it's a field that is just ripe for more discovery. I think exactly. Um, so the bread and rice are two things, as you say, in the Muslim world, that is, for the different, all the various cuisines that that pretty and much spices. ties together. Spices. What would you say, what are some of the most, and I'm, I think, so I just think Middle Eastern food. I mean, that's, that's what I have in my head, you know, when I think of it. And, but then I see that there are, you know, a lot of different uses of, of the spices. What spices did you find? Anything pop out that was a little different that you had, weren't accustomed to using in some of the dishes? Now, I know you cook. <laughs> quite broadly throughout through these regions. Um, well, I mean the um, the spice mixture from the Arabian Gulf, bizarre. I didn't know it at all until I started going to the I mean to the Gulf. Even when I used to visit Kuwait before, um, I started writing about food. I didn't really pay attention to it. But when I did a TV series in the Emirates to discover Emirati cuisine. I came across that spice mixture and and how each household prepares it themselves. Mm. They don't go and buy it. Buy a can of it, right? <laughs> I mean, they can, you can, but no self-respecting cook is going to buy it ready-made. They will buy the spices whole, they will wash them, dry them in the sun, and then grind them and put them in the freezer for the year. And usually they do that just before Ramadan, because Ramadan is the time when they cook a lot and they receive a lot. And then there's the feast after the end of Ramadan. So what are the prevalent flavors of the spices? What are the prevalent spices in that mixture? Oh, my God, it's really heady. It's, um, you have turmeric, coriander, uh, ginger, cinnamon, cloves, 
you get you get a good hint of cloves, of course, and turmeric, and um, I can't remember, but there are at least, if not a dozen spices, at least eight or ten different spices, mm. and they're very well balanced. It's a little hot because there's black pepper, but it's not really. And what's interesting is that they use it, and then they use other spices as well in the same dish. So they would have, let's say, a tablespoon of czar, and then a table, a cardamom is very important. Um, cardamom and saffron are the flavors of the Gulf, um, as is saffron is the flavor of Iran, for instance, and, and Morocco. Um, and so you have in a, the recipe, let's say, of the Emirati biryani, the, the sauce that's layered in between the rice, you would have bzar, then you would have cayenne pepper and, and coriander and more cloves, I think, and nutmeg. I mean, it's like when I, when I do the mise en place for that dish, <laughs> my, my spices are half the chopping board. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that, you know, I, I wonder if sometimes it's like when they're flavored so, so, and those are earthy, they're very earthy flavors that you're describing. Mm. A little goes a long way in terms of not the spices, but the, ulti- the, the, the finished product, the dish. Like you can eat a little bit of it and feel so, so satisfied. Mm. You know, so well, much. that's if you're not, I mean, I'm very greedy and I <laughs> eat a lot of it. <laughs> okay, it depends on the appetite then. We'll just, we'll leave it at that. Or the discipline. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the, you mentioned, um, so the use of, of the spices. You mentioned something in the book that things, uh, something I wanted to get to, and that was about, um, oh, a friend of mine, Stephen Schmidt, was trying to um, reproduce. He does um, a lot of work in, in old manuscript cookbooks and manuscripts. And he was trying for a, 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 he was trying to reproduce some medieval recipes, and he had to admit that you know he was not a medievalist, and so he, this was a stretch for him. But he said that the cooking of the medieval Islamic world still survives today. It's true. Okay, to varying degrees, of course, in, and in most cultures, um, that medieval Islam is touched with contemporary cooking, right, of the cultures, and that for him helped inform him of how to reproduce some of these medieval recipes. So you agree, and you agree that the that these dishes, the medieval cooking techniques and recipes are still very much alive. Yeah, I mean, very much alive, maybe not very much, but they are alive. And if you go through the manuscripts, sometimes the names vary, but the dish is still in existence. And sometimes the dish is still in existence, like shish barak, which is dumplings cooked in yogurt. It has the same name, and it's found in one of the manuscripts. I can't remember which one, either the 10th century or the 13th century cookbook. But... um, but if I'm not mistaken, it's not cooked in yogurt, it's cooked in a broth. And then in, in Turkey, they pour the yogurt over it. They don't cook the dumplings. I mean, they cook mm. the dumplings separately, either boiled or, or uh, baked. And then they pour the yogurt over it. Whereas in Lebanon, they actually cook the, you know, the dumplings, tortellini. They're, they're like tortellini, basically, in the yogurt. Hmm, interesting. And it is a medieval dish. Uh-huh. Well, even some, I mean, having read the descriptions, you say, from Charles Perrot, the Egyptian 
cookbook, the translations of some of those recipes. Foods that we would cook, you know, a Middle Eastern type of food that we would cook today, and very much, very similar. Obviously, we have food processors and mixers, things that make life easier, but you can't beat the mortar and pestle. It's say. true. <laughs> I mean, in Indonesia, I was so surprised because they used everybody grinds things by hand and they have this very wide mortar and the and the action is horizontal not like pounding mm-hmm. and they just grind the ingredients with a horizontal pestle and almost everybody only one cook i visited used the food processor everybody else was doing it by hand and many were still cooking over uh, wood fires hmm. interesting Well, we have a lot more to talk about um, and some of your experiences as well. So stay tuned. I'm talking with Anissa Helu, and we're going to come back after a short break. In a recent episode of A Taste of the Past, I spoke with Annie Gray, the author of The Greedy Queen, a celebration of Queen Victoria's appetite for both food and, indeed, for life. Queen Victoria was head of state during a revolution in how the British ate from the highest tables to the most humble. And it was well known that she loved her sweets, especially cakes. In fact, the royal kitchen kept their own confectioner on the kitchen staff, something that was unheard of at that time. And it's well known by now, Queen Victoria instituted the afternoon tea. Afternoon tea replete with cakes, fancy breads, and biscuits. Take a listen to episode 296 of A Taste of the Past, and you might want to try to recreate some of Queen Victoria's favorite recipes. Then stock up on all the flour, sugar, and baking aids you need at bobsredmill.com and use the code A Taste of the Past, all one word for 25% off your order. Hi, we're back, and I am speaking with Anissa Helu, and she is a cooking authority of Middle Eastern and, and Mediterranean foods, and the author, as well as many books, and the author of a new book, Feast, Food of the Islamic World. And Anissa, you have um, taken on, as I said, you've taken on so many different foods and, and, and so many different regions and um, any surprises any any thing totally different that surprised you um, in, in terms of unusual food um, food stuffs or is it, was it all pretty familiar to you going into it well not when I came across a camel hump <laughs> a camel's hump okay I, I have had a little. I've had a little cheat. I've read a little story on this. Uh, tell me about that one. They actually eat the camel's hump. Um, well, the the camel hump. The camel's hump is a bit of flav, uh, fat. I mean, it's actually a lot of fat. What they eat is what is under the fat, mm. and it's the fillets nestled against the spine. Um, and if the if the camel is a baby camel and the meat is very tender. It's very, very delicious. And it is the prize piece at any feast. And the, the reason I became obsessed with it is when I was doing this TV series, we were invited to a beautiful feast where the host had cooked a whole camel. 
So we arrive, and I'm like very excited. I didn't even, or maybe I knew about the camel hump. I can't remember. I'm very excited, and I jump out of the car and about to go into the majlis, which is where the men like gather and eat. And my producer stops me and tells me I can't go there because our host is very traditionalist, very traditional, and doesn't receive women. I was absolutely devastated. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I think they had said to me the camel and the hump and everything. And I, they sent me to the wife and, and the mother, to the house where the wife and the mother were. And I said, send me some of that camel hump. I have to taste it. <laughs> and, of course, they didn't. Yeah. And luckily, two weeks later or three weeks later, I was in a catering kitchen learning to cook Emirati dishes. And they were cooking a whole camel for a feast. Um, some, some person had his brother coming back from a work trip or something or a work um, assignment. And they were receiving him with a huge sort of, you know, a whole camel roasted over a bed of rice. So I said to the chefs, Okay, it's not our food. You have to send it out. But please give me a little <laughs> little taste. And then they did. And it was fine. I mean, there was nothing particularly special about it. Much ado about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but then I wanted to write about it. And a friend of mine, who's the daughter of the ruler of Sharjah, one of the Emirates, very kindly gave me a whole baby camel wow. so that I could get the hump and cook it. And so I went to the slaughterhouse and acquainted myself with that baby camel before he became, you know, pieces of camel and went back home to my brother who lives in Dubai uh, with the camel hump to cook. And that was actually exquisite because the, the, the animal was very small, but still milk fed and the meat was just... My brother was horrified when he saw it in the kitchen <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he couldn't believe that I would like be cooking something like this. But then when I cooked it and we had it with with rice, he was very impressed and it was actually very good. Wow. Don't think it's anything I'm going to be trying too soon. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> it's will. hard to find a camel around here but <laughs> in New York City, but that that's quite that's quite a, a story for quite an adventure. Uh, and we were talking about um, of course, you figure those were the animals that were around. That's what they had. Of course, they you know cooked it and it became part of their diet. Yeah. As far as ingredient, we're talking about medieval techniques, medieval dishes, um, very much in existence in certain ways, certain forms. But what about ingredients? Um, much change in the ingredients in a lot of the the old dishes of I mean, dishes of the of the empires or. Not much, really. I mean, the, that whole part of the world, most of it is still very traditionalist. The women still cook. I mean, the young generation is changing, and they don't want to cook. And But there's still, there's still this sense of family life and of meeting and gathering around a meal. And the meal... I mean, the kids go for fast food and stuff, but, mm. you know, in the homes when the families gather, they're still serving traditional food. They're not sitting around, I don't know, pasta, for instance. Right. Well, and you mentioned that still very much in existence, and I know this from interpreting and it, cooking uh, interpretive recipes from uh, different Persian books, Naomi de Good's book particularly is, the lavish use of herbs, and you say that that is still very much 
Totally, um, totally. I mean, that's that's their salad too. That's those are their greens, right? Yeah. A lot of herbs, and I've I've sort of incorporated that now into a lot of my cooking because it's just there's a freshness about it that yeah, and it's so healthy. Yeah, that's great. Um, there, um, so as far as the other ingredients, a lot of things are the same. And you mentioned oh, you mentioned sitting around. That's right, sitting around with family, and then you mentioned the camel was for a feast. How uh, as in, in in any culture, any religion, feasts and holidays. Really are where we find out a lot about the foods of different um, cultures, and this being very much so for the Islamic world as well. Correct? Absolutely. It's um, I mean feasts and the special occasions. You know, um, celebrations, celebrations, circumcision, weddings, um, and of course Ramadan, a whole month of fasting and feasting, mm-hmm. and. There, you did um, write a nice, a very nice piece about the importance of the date, and that's throughout most of the world, most of those worlds that you, the cultures that you, well, particularly the the well, Middle Eastern and, and Mediterranean yeah, more, worlds, yeah, more the Middle East and and Mediterranean and North Africa, um, a little bit in Africa as well. Actually, in Africa as well, I think you lose it or don't see it much when you go. East, you know, like in Indonesia, or I don't remember in Muslim China seeing much. Um, no, and so, but but absolutely essential in you know the Middle East, North Africa, um, Tanzania, even I think in Senegal. But the the Prophet Muhammad, when he used to break his fast, he always broke his fast with, I mean allegedly with three dates so it's a very very important fruit for in islam mm-hmm. and of course and so much used as a sweetener as well for some exactly things, right? with date syrup and and you know using date paste in the breads and all this and it was a very very important fruit to the early muslims because they i mean that's where it all started in an oasis where date was not only an essential fruit for sustenance, but also for bartering. Hmm. So many of these regions that you have written about, not only in this book, but in, in your previous books, of course, they're, you know, they're under siege and, and so much um, destruction and, and uh, damage going on. People leaving, um, and you yourself, of course, you've lived in London for most of your life, or half your, over half of your life, and 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 now in Sicily, um, but let's, for instance, Syria and, and Aleppo. Of course, you know we know that well, there's very little left there. What what are your feelings about these cuisines, and and are they in danger of, of being lost? I think there is a serious danger of losing traditions. Maybe not the whole cuisine or the the recipes because the dishes because people take the food with them, but it changes where when they're outside. In the case of Syria, half of the population is displaced, and most of them are in difficult circumstances. So where whereas back at home they would like cook with meat and rich ingredients. Uh, they in their refugee camps they can't because they can't afford it so 
they start cooking differently. They, they still, I remember going to lunch with a refugee when I was writing an article about how, you know, the traditions were at risk of being lost. And she received me very kindly. I mean, she had nothing, this lady. She was wonderful. She received me for lunch. She insisted that I would have lunch with her. And she served fatouche, which is the bread salad, put fried potatoes, fried aubergines, and hummus. There was no meat because with their allowance, they could buy meat at the beginning of the month. And then for 20 days, they couldn't afford meat. Mm -hmm. So if you think of that, you know, as time passes by, the mother may not be able to pass on to the daughter, you know, recipes for kibbe or for, you know, uh, uzi or whatever, you know, like the, the, the festive dishes, you know, with roasting meat and serving them with rice and nuts and, you know, very expensive ingredients. And slowly these traditions or recipes could be lost and will be lost. Interesting. And I think that that's um, something that I, I admire you for writing this book, too, because you do search for a lot of the historical um, value in these cultures and, and bringing that food um, to light. Yeah, well, it's writings. very important for me to keep it. I mean, having, I'm, I consider myself an orphan of two countries. I mm. mean, Lebanon had a civil war and Syria is in the middle of, if not a civil war, a terrible um, destructive um, struggle and I was lucky enough to be brought up you know with my mother and grandmother and aunt and seeing everything being made and you know where I lived and never kind of having to search for flavors that had have been lost and I would I like to kind of preserve these recipes for future generations who could, if not, reproduce them. I mean, my first Lebanese book was specifically written to preserve my mother's recipes mm. and to give the younger Lebanese generation who had been displaced by the war a book to be able to cook their own food that they haven't, that they had left behind. Interesting, yeah. And this is this is something that, and these recipes are not just feast dishes even though in the book is feast but, <laughs> but and nor um, necessarily celebratory dishes they're they're daily dishes they're, they're yeah I mean there's a combination there are some that are celebratory and right. some that are everyday dishes yeah many are everyday dishes yeah excellent well I just I cannot say enough about it I think it's a wonderful book but thank you what's very interesting is talking to you and your experience in in having written about these cultures for so long and being of the culture, that certainly you, uh, you know, have that firsthand knowledge. How long was this book in the making? <laughs> well, I think it took me about three years to write, research and write, and test recipes, and then about a year and a half of kind of gestation, thinking about it, you know, writing the proposal, researching for the proposal, and and waiting for a publisher to be interested. Oh, well. But it, I didn't wait very long, but it took... <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I, I mean, you know, it took time to kind of think about it, think about what would be the best way to approach such a huge subject. Right. Well, it is by um, 
uh, HarperCollins, Echo Press, HarperCollins, and it is a beautiful book uh, and large format book, which is that's wonderful. It's not, and yet it's not a coffee table book. It is a it's a working book. It's yes. a book to to cook from, and it's as beautiful as it is instructive. And I thank you so much for taking the time to share that knowledge with me thank on you. the show. And I know you have so many so many exciting things happening now. The book is out, um, came out May 29th, just hot off the presses. Yes. And I look forward to seeing more great positive reactions to it. And hearing more from you and, and your writings and hope that you won't be a stranger. And come <laughs> back and... and talk some more we can also do phone interviews don't forget <laughs> but a pleasure you, to have Linda. you here in the studio thank you linda and thank you for listening this has been another taste of the past Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.